Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Perfect. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Welcome to our 100th episode, our 100th official studio episode. Yes, of... stu- yeah, it's not our one where we're, you know, like kind of playing live on top of a building. It's one of the ones where we're back in the studio, isn't it? Absolutely. The live stuff doesn't count. That's just for the collectors. <laughs> yeah, and also we don't, you know, if you do want to bootleg some of the live sessions that we've done chatting to authors just in pubs and stuff, that's absolutely fine. Oh, it's, lovely. Uh, no problem, no problem. Just don't treat it as canon. You can't be saying that's the official chat that we've had with Richard Holloway, because <laughs> we're all drinking. It doesn't count. Um, anyway, so thank you very much for everyone who's allowed us to keep going uh, until this uh, 100th episode. Um, and hopefully we're going to keep going afterwards, aren't we, Josie? Yes, I hope so. Are you going to come in with a cot all the time, though? With a little... Oh, that'd be we'll good. We'll have to it? see how it goes, won't we? Who knows what type of a child they'll be? be good. At... Well, remember Alice Lowe when she brought in her Prevenge baby. That's great. It, that yeah. baby really added to the ambiance. Yeah. And ate that James Baldwin book. Hmm. She devoured it. <laughs> yes, and if you would like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do that at patreon.com slash bookshambles. Like Robin said, we wouldn't have been able to make even a single episode without your support on there, so we really do appreciate it. And there's lots of rewards and perks and that sort of thing for contributing on Patreon as well. From just $3 a month, you get our bonus episodes and extended episodes of all the all the normal Thursday episodes. There's extended editions of those for Patreons, and you can win tickets to some of our live events on there as well. And as you move up the amount you want to pledge each month, there's more stuff available. So behind the scenes stuff and an online book club. Uh, The first one's actually this Saturday, May 19th, 5pm. You should have got information about that if you are pledging at that level. The three of us will be talking about Kurt Vonnegut's Galapagos. We'll be sending out the link for that very shortly about where you can log in. And we'll be on webcam there and you can log in as well and chat to us about the book. And then all the way up to the top tier where you can uh, purchase a guest spot for yourself on an episode of Book Shambles. We're actually recording the first one of those the day after this episode goes out where we'll be chatting with one of our Patreon supporters. And if you can't pledge on Patreon, that's fine. You can still help us out just by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show or spreading the word about it on social media or telling your friends about it. All that helps us keep making the show and getting great guests and all that goes with that. Or you can come along to one of our live shows. We're doing four episodes of Book Shambles live at the Albert Hall this June. And no, Josie, they are not canon, but it's fine. We're doing them anyway. It's about 15 quid for a ticket to either of those nights. We're recording two episodes per night. June 4 with Professor Lucy Green and Alan Moore. And then on June 11 with Adam Buxton and Dr. Hannah Fry, Royal Albert Hall for those tickets. And while you're there, why not get tickets to Space Shambles on June 15 in the main room at the Albert Hall, if you've not already. Uh, Robin hosting that big variety night with astronaut Chris Hadfield with lots of special guests like Jim Al-Khalili and Stuart Lee and Apollo 9 astronaut Rusty Schweikart will be there. 
and lots of other surprise guests that we're going to keep secret until the night, but uh, we can guarantee you, you are going to love what we've got in store. And tickets for that start at just nine quid. Nine quid for a show at the Albert Hall with astronauts and comedians and scientists and bands and lasers and all sorts of crazy stuff we've got planned. So don't miss that. And also, if you've not already checked out the trailer for our new radio documentary on Richard Feynman for his 100th birthday, that's on the website now. Head to CosmicShambles.com and listen to that. Robin presenting uh, the show with uh, Professor Brian Cox and John Butterworth and Helen Chersky, music from Grace Petrie, and lots more as well. Check that out on the Cosmic Shambles website. And now on to this week's episode, the 100th episode, which, yes, we know, as Robin said, is like our 140th total episode um it's our 100th in the studio and if you do the maths and it's technically not the 100th in the studio it it doesn't matter it's fine it's the it's the 100th episode in our hearts and that's what's important also it's called shambles so we're it's fine don't worry about it so here it is our chat with mr brian cranston That's, uh, no, that's the beautiful, because I, I, I kind of work in both worlds in some ways, because I make a lot of shows about science, mm. and I work with scientists, but also the touring show that I'm doing at the moment is all about George O'Keefe and art and stuff like that, so right. I kind of, uh, yeah. which I quite like doing the art one, because it means people can come up to me and say that they believe I'm wrong, but they can no longer say that I've totally misunderstood the equation. Exactly. So right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we'll start off, we'll, uh, hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles, uh, afraid to say that Josie, who is, as many of you listeners will know, very heavily pregnant. Uh, is not here this afternoon. Uh, very quick thank you, by the way, to all of our Patreon supporters, and that is why we exist. And uh, today's guest is, I, I just saw him about a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, at the National Theatre playing uh, the part of Howard Beale in Network, is Brian Cranston. Um, hello. Robin, um, how are you? We should probably get what we were talking about beforehand already. Let's start on that subject where the difference between... Science and art, we were just talking about the fact that uh, Network, my wife and I both entirely agreed it was a magnificent, on, on every level, Thank it, you. it worked. Uh, whereas we went to see another play where, as we left, we realized that uh, we'd had very different experiences. Right. And what I was saying is that both of you are correct. She was right in how she felt and, and how it resonated or didn't resonate with her. And you were right in how you felt. And that's what's so great about the arts is that it embraces everyone's point of view, and everyone is correct. And I tell the audience when I have Q&As after the show or something, if, if you didn't respond to this play, you're not wrong. Mm. And all of a sudden they go, oh, so I don't feel like I'm... Uh, no, 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 you, you're absolutely right. So somehow, some way, we didn't affect you. Uh, why is it that we can sit in an audience and and one person be so taken in by what they just experienced and the other person was like eh, I, mm. I don't I can give or take it doesn't doesn't mean anything to me it it depends on your personal history your background your education your culture your understanding your experience in life uh, and where you are in that particular time in your life you could be more emotional more susceptible to something than another person so it's it's really the the ultimate is it's the ultimate embrace of humanity. 
Do you find it frustrating though? But I, one of the things I find a problem, I especially notice it in, in in my world in things like comedy reviews sometimes, or because it seems to be one of the things that people get most angry about is if they saw everyone else laughing and they didn't get the joke. That seems to make people they, they don't mind so much in not having enjoyed a piece of drama that they didn't. But if everyone else has laughed, it seems like an insult to them, and you get this very dogmatic where people go because I love the subjectivity of it, but then you you know you go online <laughs> and people go that's not funny, and you go no no no. But, but those 3,000 people were laughing. So even though they may well, it might have been a terrible delusion that they were under, yeah. they definitely found it funny. And that, that's the one problem I sometimes have with the arts is, is when, not with the arts itself, but the judgment, when you go, why can't people just go, I had a different experience, but it does not mean that I can entirely ignore or, or, or reject that piece. I can just say it was not for me. That's right. There's plenty of times that, that a joke will go over my head because the point of reference is either way too young for me or too old for me, or maybe culturally I, w- I wasn't aware of something. So I, I don't take that personally. I just didn't get it. You talk a little bit in the book about also when you sometimes see an actor and you think that's not an authentic performance, there's something missing. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, I wondered if you could tell a little bit more about that technique where you said of trying to work out what is missing and why the, the, that performance is not believable and also finding out whether you can work out whether the actor knows that it's not authentic. And that to me is a very, because sometimes as, as, as just a punter watching, every now and again there's a play and you just go, the, you know, you see five actors and three of them you go, they feel fully fleshed out. I could see them walking off stage and they are still that person and then there's something missing. And I, and I can't put my finger on it because I'm just a punter watching, you know, but there's something instinctual. Right. But I will tell you that, you know, there's been a lot said about the, in in the general terms, about the British actor who is has more depth in craft and technique, but has has not experienced the depth of level of true emotion that the uh, quote-unquote American actor, the the method actor, has found in the actor's studio, that the American actors are not as disciplined, we're sloppier, but we're more... We're more uh, Emotional. We're more. We're, we we feel it on stage. Whereas the the British actor, in general, again, will present a performance. You believe it. Steps off side. Uh, steps off stage and tells a joke, or lights a cigarette and is. Um, whereas another actor might still be shaking from the emotion that they they just went through. The truth is is that both are fair. The only thing that matters is what happens on that stage at that moment. If you are presenting it and knowing that you are behind it and you are presenting, well, watch the audience react to this, boom, there it is and they did. And isn't that a magic trick and isn't that lovely? That's all fair. It doesn't matter if the only thing that matters is did you communicate that scene? Did you serve the play? Are you telling the story? And if you are, it doesn't matter if you are feeling the depths of pain that your character really is or not. All that matters is, did you did you deliver at the time you needed to? It's that, that famous story, which you all know about Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier in The yeah. Marathon Man, you know, where yeah. I think Dustin Hoffman stays up for the whole night and he comes in and he's all sweaty and jittery. And Laurence Olivier goes, it's called acting, dear boy. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, and what I love about that story is people align with the hero in that story can be Dustin Hoffman or it can be Laurence Olivier. It can be either one. Well, in- and that's what's great about it is that you as a, you as a performer need to find your lane. 
What is true for you? What is authentic for you? What works for you? Any teacher who tells you this is the way you have to perform, this is the way you have to approach a character, and there is only one way, is a liar or just ignorant. There are many different ways to approach, sometimes from the outside in, sometimes from the inside out. Sometimes, yeah, I can tell you that if you and I were wearing tuxedos right now, we might be sitting at this table very differently because the wardrobe does help uh, affect the way you feel, the way you hold your body. If, if, you know what I mean? And so, yes, the outside in can work or the inside out. What, what is truly happening emotionally will, will then follow through and it will then dictate what happens physically in the exterior. I have a ridiculous thing about in, in stand-up. I always wear cardigans. I always have a cardigan and a neat little kind of button shirt. And the other day, I, I hadn't put something on stage that I needed. And there were only a few people in the audience. It, I quite like breaking that wall anyway because often I'll have a chat with people. But I still thought take the cardigan off because it's not showtime. Showtime's when the and, it, and it's such a minor it's thing. Funny, yeah. But there's still that bit of going. I'm now making a slight transition, even though I'm only an, uh, an exaggeration, the adrenaline exaggerated yeah. version myself. But I go I mustn't ruin it with the buttoned cardigan. <laughs> and they'll be going, oh, we've seen the character now. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, your your book is uh, it certainly felt to me it's very honest Thank you, you. Um, both dealing with, with with your family with your mother and your father mm-hmm. uh, relationships you've had with other people and indeed with other ac- actors mm-hmm. and I wonder how much you in the process of doing it something that I think I've found with middle ages it seems to take a long time to suddenly go oh I've just worked out why I'm like this or I'm like that <laughs> or where that character traits come from. You think it's blindingly obvious, you know, the action of a parent or whatever it might be. And you think, but sometimes it takes getting into your 40s, 50s, whatever it might be to then go. And did you find in the process of, of, of writing the book that every now and again you went, oh, that's another piece that's fitted into place now? Or we, was it there Yes, it, writing my book was, was cathartic in its, in its exercise. I didn't know that it would be. I thought I was going to tell stories in short story form about the parts that I played on stage or in film and television and the parts that we all play in our real lives, a part of a son, a brother, a husband, a father, a neighbor, a citizen, and those things. Um, and I, and, uh, but of course it is. Every, every time you delve into and try to find the honesty, the authenticity of, of a moment, uh, it has to be cathartic because you are re- reliving it in some ways. And when I was writing it, I, I was getting emotionally upset. There's a couple chapters in there talking about when I felt absolute rage, when I felt I was capable as a human being of taking another human being's life. And that's frightening. And I relived that fear in retelling that story. My hands were shaking. My heart rate was up. And I could feel my anxiety levels. Um, And then the other times you're talking about finer moments when you're when when I'm just smiling throughout telling the story because I'm I'm reliving that and and feeling the familial sense that I had at the time, whether it's from Malcolm in the Middle or Breaking Bad or, or you know, all the way back in my, own, in my own real family or when I met my wife or, or the, the, the experience that I had on my honeymoon. 
Um, and so, so I, I did. I wanted to, to be completely honest. I, I don't think that there was, there's any point in writing a memoir unless you're going to be honest. Uh, what was interesting about it, and, and I, th I think very ignorant on my part, uh, was that when I was writing it, there's a sense of intimacy that I'm writing this and only I know that what I'm doing this is a relationship I have right now with me as I'm writing these stories. And then you publish it, and then all of a sudden that intimacy becomes public knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I had people come up to me on the street and say, I, I read A Life in Parts, and that part when you said this, and I went, oh my gosh, I did say that, didn't I? You now know something very personal about me. And it was a little initially uncomfortable, and I, again, I, I claim ignorance because I hadn't written a book before, and... Uh, so I, I wasn't quite prepared to realize that I've, I've opened up the vault of me and everybody has had a, a good look who has read the book. The right, the, one of the things that I found most touching when you were writing about your mother was that when she started to suffer from Alzheimer's. Mm. And you write about the, uh, it's, it's kind of artist's uh, residential home, wasn't it, that you got her in? And, and that, I'll, that, yeah, you put it in your, but just that moment of the loss of the the kind of the sense of failure and hate that she might have had because the memory itself had gone and that you lived yeah in 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 a different present yeah um my mother was diagnosed with alzheimer's and uh, i was able to get her into the motion picture home in los angeles which takes care of uh anybody who was in the business, and she started out in the business as well. My, my father was an actor, and she was an actress, and they met in an acting class post-World War II. Uh, and I, I, I did a, a, a PSA for um, alzheimersresearch.uk here, and it was uh, about the orange. And um, I was very happy to do it because I think they're doing some great work here in the UK as far as... Um, Alzheimer's research, but my mother became um, my mother was was sweet and fun and loving, and that's how I remember her as a child. And then when my father left her, she was she was desperately hurt, but she didn't have the the maturity to handle and to go on. And she became an alcoholic, and she was resentful and and angered. Uh, and the alcohol uh, just exacerbated that and and allowed her to hold on to that anger and resentment. And that was my relationship with her through my adult years. So needless to say, there was a, a tremendous distance, a chasm of understanding between us, and we didn't see each other that much because it was ugly. And I happened to look like my father, and she would bring that up every time. Yeah, and you, you look just like your father, and he would do this and he would do that. And I go, Mom, you gotta let, you gotta let that go. It's, it's so, and she couldn't. And then she contracted a disease that wouldn't allow her to hold on to resentment or uh, I thought or anger, and I thought that was so ironic. And, and also the irony is that we became closer and closer the more she was affected by the disease because our conversations were simple. We would go to the pond and she would look at the ducks and we'd feed the ducks or we'd look at the roses in bloom or we'd talk about the sunny day. Or 
and we didn't have a reason to fight anymore. That was gone. But so was her understanding of who I was. I, I think I was just a nice, a nice young man to her at a certain point. Do you think there are some people, though, I think I've, I've met them, some people who the moment it even looks like there might have been the potential of possible success, they duck out of that because there is a greater certainty for some people to say, oh, of course, I could have been in that and I could have been this person and I could have been in that band. That, that For some people, they mm-hmm. will, the, the could have been fear, seems like well, a safer place to be than the risk of failure. There's definitely a fear of success, fear of failure, um, elements that are involved in all of that. I, in some of the acting classes that I've been in through my life, I've seen some brilliant actors who have never gone on to had a career. And whether or not that means they sabotage themselves at any given point or they can't do in class or they can't do in that audition room what they've done in class, I'm, I'm not sure. Or their personal life caved in on them or whatever. It's, it's so... It's so uh, fickle, really. But but fate and, and luck play a huge part in this. I firmly believe that no one has had a successful career in the arts without a healthy dose of luck. Mm. I just don't think it's possible. The... Um just briefly talking about uh, Breaking Bad, because one of the things that I find most interesting about it, is, as you mentioned in the book, which is the fact that the audience are with Walter. Mm-hmm. And then there's a point where... And I, and I did feel a similar thing with Tony Soprano. I think about the third series. Mm-hmm. There's a moment you see him brutalise one of his girlfriends. And it suddenly... This is not just a lost boy who had a cruel mother in this kind of Shakespearean fashion. This is a very brutal man. Mm-hmm. Um, but with, with, with Walter White, it's, it's a different thing as well because he wasn't that person at the beginning. We are watching this lost guy who was meant to be the big... The big mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he, everyone promised him he was going to be an amazing guy and then right. he's just in this, in this, this terrible life polishing tyres and pushing mm-hmm. out pubs. And that moment where you have the transition, the moment of brutality and go, but the audience are in too deep now. They can't stop going. I mean, that must be very exciting. I mean, that's a long build-up, isn't it? It's enormously exciting. Uh, Walter White uh, went through a metamorphosis. He he was one person and became another by the end of the series. And this is all Vince Gilligan. He's a genius. Uh, he would. He he is it. Every actor knows or should know and should give credit to the writer. The writers of the world are the foundation of every performance art. Without good writing, we have nothing to go on. The greatest actor in the world can maybe give a little improvement to the level of writing. If C-level writing came in, the greatest actor in the world can maybe make it a B, but that's it. It all depends on the writing. So if you are very lucky and you get A-level writing, you you start to quiver because it's like catnip. You are it's so excited because it is so it is so infused with sentiment and and the guideposts are so clear for you that it makes sense. Of course, the character would do this. It kind of helps you along with developing your character because, oh my gosh, and then she does this and then he does that. Oh. It's beautiful and it's brilliant and it makes you, the actor, look like a genius when, when you are, as I said, you're just the magician on stage 
showing a trick. And the genius, really, is the writing. I, I can't give writers enough credit. Uh, I just... it. Uh, they they deserve everything. And as a neophyte writer now and writing my own memoir, I just feel humbled when another writer says, I read your book and I really liked, oh, <laughs> I, I flush with with a little embarrassment, but uh, because it is, it is such a fine art and so hard to do uh, so well. How do you, when you were working together, when you started to occupy Walter White, and, and obviously uh, Vince also has his, that moment where every now and again, and, and you talk about certain scenes in the book as well, that bit where you go, no, 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 do you know what? I think I think this is what he would do. That bit where both of you have a fully formed three-dimensional character in your head, mm. and I presume you carried with you pretty much the same character, but every now and again, those personality arguments. Right. How, how did you deal with those? Quite well, I thought. <laughs> well, it's it's not dissimilar, I would think, from uh, say bandmates in a in a in a rock and roll band or something. Going, no, no, I think you got to go to the A sharp here, and it's like, or else, ah. you know, it's like you know, you, you kind of work through it. Or on stage, when your director says, "I think you should drop to your knees at this point," and and you say, "Oh my gosh, I think I should go the other way and proclaim victory or something," you know, so. You just you find your way through it. There is no possibility that 100 percent of the time you are going to agree with someone, nor should you, because if then you're just a clone. If you agree 100 percent of the time with a writer or with a director as an actor, then then you're missing part of the essential triumvirate of that, the actor, writer, director relationship. And and you want to have all that independent thought coming in and forming a th- another entity that is truly the result of all three elements that create something. So Walter White is not just me, and it's not just Vince. It's, a, it's an amalgam of me and Vince and all the directors we've had and all the staff writers and all the elements that have come together that, that have helped to create those characters. Now, as Walter White, I was the lead singer of the band, right? I'm the face of it. So naturally, the attention comes to me, and I, I thank them and then deflect to, to Vince because I, I know that... I would not be sitting here in this chair talking to you now. I would not have been on stage at the National Theater had it not been for Breaking Bad, had it not been for Vince Gilligan. I'm very well aware of that and grateful for that. And also, those who read the book will find out the uh, emotional uh, and psychological journey an actor goes through when he decides that tighty whities are the correct <laughs> underpants for at least series one of something. The full tighty whities underwear choice is uh, discussed. Um, because Josie's not here, though, we did record some questions with her. So uh, beforehand, okay. Well, firstly, I should say I'm so sorry I can't be there. It's my first baby. It's my only, possibly my only baby. So um, they've only got very slight preference um but the what i would love to ask is um that as an actor do you have any plays that you really really love that you've not been in that you would like to be in and do you have any characters that you really love that you would like to play that you haven't yet 
there actually have not been anything. I've been very fortunate. I, I took the tack that was the opposite of my father. Instead of looking at, I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this, I said, I just want to work. If I can just work, make a living. So I never felt a sense of entitlement. I never gave the Oscar speech in the shower. I didn't, I didn't, my head wasn't there because it was the opposite direction of where I think my father made his mistakes. And so I, I, then, then all of a sudden these things started happening. Malcolm in the Middle, Breaking Bad. Then I did All the Way, playing American president. And, and then these opportunities are coming to me. And now it's just my job to recognize what is good storytelling. Where are the good stories? And I know, and I tell young actors that if you attach yourself to the well-written word, you won't be sorry. Now, I can look back. If you looked at my IMDb page, I've done a series of films in the last few years. And I could tell you that there's probably not, you can go back to, to Argo was very successful. It not only won the Academy Award, but it was very successful at the box office. I was the second lead in that. But in some of the shows that I've been leads in, they have not made money. But I'm, I'm very proud of them. So I don't measure my success based on what it did at the box office in a, in a movie or what it did in the ratings in television or if we sold out or if I won an award or anything on stage. It has nothing to do with that. It's personal success. Are we telling the story that I felt was there from the beginning? Did we fully realize that? Did we have an experience as a company? Did we enjoy ourselves? And the answer to that is all yes. So I can honestly say I'm taking things just one step at a time. There isn't uh, a character out there that, I, well, perhaps Lear. Lear, you know, might be the thing that, that I, I would want to attempt, I think, at some point. Um, because it's a challenge. Because I have not had formal training as an actor. It was all kind of street level, picking up tips here and there and working on my own and acting classes here and there and, and, and just kind of pull it all together and understand it and, and allow myself uh, the, the permission to go in and pull out my own personal demons and goodness and, and show that and not be afraid to show that. And, and I think what happens is is that you are embraced if you are willing to be honest and authentic. Um, if you're willing to be vulnerable and, and figuratively or even literally naked on stage or in film, you're not laughed at. Mm. You are embraced by humanity. And, and the bottom line is that I think that's what's so wonderful about human beings in general is that we have that capacity to feel so much empathy for other people. And if an actor is willing to show that vulnerability, the audience, more often than not, will embrace you. There's an interesting bit in your book as well where, because, of course, recently there's been a lot of discussion about uh, misogyny and, and abuse uh, within the entertainment industry. And you do talk, I don't know if we can talk about this, but it's in the book about sure. during one of the, the uh, events at a party during the making of Breaking Bad, where yeah. 
that kind of thing wasn't for in in that environment in your environment that that would have been dealt with immediately. The, it, the, it, well, it was dealt with immediately. Um, yes, there was an instance where one of our uh, newer employees in the in the uh, assistant director department was uh, got drunk and uh, said uh, lascivious and and inappropriate things to several different women and uh, was promptly fired. And I never wanted to be in a position to say this person needs to be fired. Um, But it happened and it has to happen. Uh, And I wrote this, you know, a a year or two two ago. So this is before all the Me Too movement and time's up. And but I'm just so pleased with what's going on right now. We are in the muck and mire. uh, And we're dealing with all this, this unsavory business and vulgarity and uh, and it starts at the top. I must say, my country, my entire country is going through a troubling time. But in so many instances, in order to get through a breakthrough of things, sometimes you have to go through a breakdown. And that's what our country is doing right now. On the, on the positive side of that, I think the Time's Up movement is actually part of the goodness of it, that these abusive men uh, have been falling. And these abusive men were holding up the, the pillars of, of misogyny. And this is all crashing down now. And hopefully it will completely collapse. And for the first time in human history, think of this, the first time in human history we might have the opportunity to start a new dynamic of a relationship between all human beings, regardless of, of gender. And, we, and of equal respect and authority. And, and so where no one has the ability or power to oppress someone else, either sexually or, or physically, um, or, or, or laud over them with power or leverage or anything. And we have an opportunity for that. We have people here uh, who, who have fallen, who have, who have lost their careers. That's how serious it is. And... and I, for one, am actually pleased with that because I, I'm looking at the end uh, end game of it, and I think we're, we're going to be a healthier society because of it. With something, I mean, Josie in, in, in this country, she's she's often, you know, taken risks and been prepared to stand up in, in a way and often taken, you know, a lot of abuse for it. Yeah. And uh, and that's, I, I will have another question from her, yes. actually, because she's, she's seen so much of that. Another question that I would ask is... Um, are you sick of people trying to talk to you about Walt Whitman after Breaking Bad? I feel like that must be a thing now that people will be like, so, Walt Whitman, eh? <laughs> but you're like reading that. Or are you, or have you kind of become defensive of Walt Whitman after Breaking Bad? <laughs> um, yeah, for those of uh, who are not aware of, of uh, Breaking Bad, uh, there was a very key component uh, regarding Walt Whitman and... Uh, um, uh, my character Walter White sort of um, uh, taking over that uh, uh, his his work and in in, in anyway, uh, I I was uh, very keen on reading more Walt Whitman when it was coming up because it was so close and and so uh, much a part of the storyline. Um, 
but yes, there are, there are there are people who uh, who think and and they presume that you are now uh, you know in a position where you are an authority on it or something. And it's like uh, I, I'm not. Uh, I I move from from project to project so much. Uh, actors are are like palm trees. We 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 have um, a root system that is shallow. I don't want to say that we're shallow ourselves, but we have to we have to rip up what we've planted on stage and we've established something and and it's over. And unlike most occupations where you stay with it for your entire career, we have to rip that up and move it over somewhere else and plant it somewhere else. So they ha- it has and it has to survive. So we we have to we have to be able to be transient in that. So you can't dig in too deep. Uh, so we become kind of authorities to a, a small degree. When I was doing research on Lyndon Johnson, uh, I read Doris Kearns Goodwins and Taylor Branch and Michael Beslosh and LBJ's own uh, uh, autobiography and and Joe Califano. I mean, I was reading everything on it. Was overwhelmed with how much research to do, and I enjoy it. Uh, but that takes up a tremendous amount of time, and and it. I've I discovered that something about myself, and I know Josie has a question about <clears throat> when, what do I read for pleasure. I'd also just love to know what you read for pleasure and what you most enjoy reading. Like, do you dip into things or are you very intense in how you read? Um, So yeah, those will be my questions. I will allow myself all the time that's needed to read something when it's related to work, when it's related to something I'm about to do. I will read and read and read. Isn't it interesting? I deny myself that pleasure of reading that's not connected to it because I feel like, oh, I just don't have the time. I can't tell you how many books I've started and not finished. And, and I'm determined to have that not be a part of me. First example, right now I'm reading Manhattan Beach, uh, Jennifer Egan. My wife read it, loved it, and so now I'm reading it. And I'm determined to read it. I'm enjoying it. It has no connection to me. There's, I'm not going to be in a movie of Manhattan Beach or anything. Um, so there's that. But but I also enjoyed just the research element of being able to 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 find out more about the subject. So when we're doing when I'm doing all the way, and I'm doing Lyndon Johnson, I'm not only researching that man, but I also have to research the arena, the world of politics, American politics in the, in the 50s, 60s. And, you know, so so there's, there's a lot to take in. Uh, network was not only finding out who Howard Beale really was, but what was going on in America in the 70s and, and the, the packaging of news and that sort of thing. So there was a lot of research to do. With Walter, did you, uh, because he was a, as, as a young man, this kind of this incredible, you know, the potential of being a great scientist. Did you read around, you know, certain science books, you know, kind of maybe Richard Feynman or whoever it might be, but that, that just to get that that level of right, I can kind of see why he m- could start to think like that. Yes. Well, I didn't read that book. Um, I went to the University of Southern California and uh, approached the 
the head of the chemistry department and asked if I could just shadow him and and yes and so I did my research there I wanted to I wanted to reacquaint myself with with chemistry which I disdained in high school and I thought it was I don't know I it's just so much science I was I was more interested in in girls and goofing around I I, I just wasn't a serious person there and you know for example in the elemental table uh, iron is fe and i thought well they're, they're you know, why why would you have iron you know come on you're even not being truthful to us so i i i realize now that i'm tasked i'm going to play walter white and he's a, a chemistry genius um i i realized oh my god chemistry really is in every aspect of our lives and I and I had a much greater appreciation for it, and and seeing the, that you could have uh, two compounds that are individually inert but to get together volatile, and I thought found that fascinating, and it's like wow, science, as as Jesse Pinkman would say, yay, science, <laughs> you know. So um, it was it it. It, it allowed me to to then delve into that world and I read some more books on chemistry and and and, and but it's hard because try to write a book on chemistry that that keeps your attention and not get too technical or didactic and and be able to understand it from a layman's standpoint it's hard there's a great uh, a, a chemist who I hope writes a book one day who I work with sometimes he comes on stage with me and blows stuff up and we never do the health and safety beforehand <laughs> but he's a, I know he's a good chemist his name's Andreas Seller is because when I look at his hands they're all covered in welts and blisters <laughs> and he's one of those he's, he was the first person who said go on pop your finger in liquid nitrogen it'll be fine and it is there's a little blanket of, of air but you just don't keep it in there you have to take it back out again and you have to trust that you'll go I must remember to take because you know that bit where you think what if for some reason my brain goes ha, 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 I'm keeping it in there but I love, yeah. That I mean, that's one of my favourite things about those kind of ideas. And we'll give Josie's final question. Uh... Like, who are your favourite dramatists? Like, um, do you have a preference for American dramatists, or do you have uh, other preferences? That's what I'd like to know. <sighs> Sorry, I'm out of breath because I just walked us up some stairs. It's good that you're out of breath because it makes it sound like you're actually giving birth, which makes it sound like <laughs> an even better uh, reason. Uh, I'm afraid Jesse can't be with us today well, because she's giving birth. To be fair, it's it's all up for grabs. <laughs> the sweepstake remains unanswered at this stage. Arthur Miller, uh, Eugene O'Neill. Um, I think are are my are my favourites. Um, I I love the humanity in them and the and the flaws in their characters. Um, but I'm a I'm I'm just a lover of storytelling, and wherever I get that, uh, I I'm attracted. Whether it's on stage or in short stories or novel, or film or animation, or it's it, it's it's all great. I mean, I'm, I'm in Isle of Dogs, Wes Anderson's movie that's out right now, and it's a beautiful film, and um, and beautiful way to tell a story, and I think even more effective in animation form than it would have been in live action. He, I think he chose the right medium for it. Um, so it doesn't matter to me where the storytelling takes place or who's telling it. I want to be a part of it. 
He does do stories like I think the second or maybe third film I saw the the uh, uh, the one about the the Tenenbaums Royal the, Tenenbaums, yeah, Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> and that was the first time that went ah oh, this is like an Edward Gorey cartoon you know the, the <laughs> paintings and the illustrations of Edward Gorey and it's that beautiful mix where you go you can see his influences but he's also his own voice as well but like all voices he brings yeah. with him yeah also really those that that made that voice and he's a true. Wes Anderson is a true auteur where you go in and you say, you just fall into his arms and you know that he's going to guide you through the world of his sensibilities and you just trust in the pathway. Vince Gilligan is like that. Um, actually, Linwood Boomer, who created Malcolm in the Middle, was like that. You go, I, I trust you in everything you're doing. And so uh, if you can somehow throughout the course of your career, find those people who you can just trust and, and you know, and completely, then you have, you have really done yourself a service. Thank you very much. I should also say that I mean, the book's filled with great advice in Malcolm in the Middle. There's some very good advice on why you should always hum your own tune. Uh, background <laughs> shots. We won't tell you why, but uh, you'll find out when you read A Life in Parts by Brian Cranston. Thank you very much. Thank you. I should say uh, thank you very much for listening as well. And uh, Brian's book is currently available. Uh, and we are going to be doing a show at the Royal Albert Hall. Not Brian, unfortunately, but Chris Hadfield and I with a selection of bands, comedians and uh, other astronauts uh, on the 15th. 15th of June, so uh, there are still a few tickets available for that. Oh yeah, my book's out at the end of October as well. Buy that. It's all about social anxiety. <laughs> what, what, what's idiot. the name of the, what's the title of the book? My book's going to be called "I'm a Joke and So Are You." It's what I've learned from being a comedian about all the that we're all absurd. Yeah, there's a fascinating thing I just found out. There's a there's a group called Disorder for Everyone, and it's trying to show that a lot of things that have been called mental health problems and 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 things that are given you know prescriptions for are actually idiosyncratic parts of being human mm. and that the pills themselves don't so it's like that uh, there's a thing called dsm you probably know do you know about dsm it's diagnostic uh it's basically it's, it's the manual that covers all the things that mean you've got a mental health problem oh wow and every time it comes out the previous edition is a bit of an embarrassment so you go back far enough and things like homosexuality was yeah. a mental health issue. Yes. And this, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's really, so it's kind of. A, How yeah, often does it come out? The it's, new, a new The, the last one must have been about three years ago, I think. They're on, are they on number six now, Trent? Number five or number six? I think it's number six. And then they but, make corrections along the way. Yeah, and then they go, that's just what part of being said human, last time, I think. Was, <laughs> Today we'd like to say thank you to Nikki Palmer, Sarah Fletcher, David Barham, Alf Eaton, Jack, oh, Jack Browen, Brofham, Browen, Jack, thank you, Charlotte Riddler, David Fraser, Victoria Hopton, and Dougie, Doogie. I'll tell you what, we'll thank Jack every week with all the different <laughs> possibilities until we get it right. <laughs> Thank you to those and all our Patreons. Remember, you can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles. And, of course, you can check out any of our previous hundred and something episodes and check out all the reading lists for those as well at cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. We feel very lucky to have been able to make the show and continue to make the show over these past few years. We've spoke to some incredible guests in that time. Nick Offerman, Stuart Lee, Sarah Pascoe, Chris Hadfield, Charlotte Church, A.L. Kennedy... Alan Moore, Noel Fielding, Laura Bates, Mark Gaddis. The list goes on and on and on. 
So thank you for listening, and we will be back on Sunday with another Book Shambles Author Extra, and then next week on Thursday with a normal episode of Book Shambles when our guest will be Deborah Francis White. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 